Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 22nd of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The United Kingdom will leave the European Union on the 29th of March. That is a week from today. The inflexible date of the 29th of March became flexible yesterday. And instead of it being the 29th of March, it became the 12th of April or maybe the 22nd of May, or maybe the United Kingdom will leave the European Union sometime in December, or maybe on a date in the December after that, like December 2021. Uh, Please don't laugh, it's far too serious. And if the British think for a moment that they are the laughingstock of the world, they might, well, they might just do something stupid. Uh, let's talk about this with Paddy Malone, who's uh, the PRO for uh, Dundalk's uh, Chamber of Commerce. Good morning to you, Paddy, and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Michael. I'm sure, Here we go again. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree that as ridiculous as it is, it is no laughing matter. No, it's not, and, and I wish I could be flippant about the thing, but I, it's just too bloody serious to be. I, when, I, when you were listing off the dates, that was actually going through my head that maybe we should be talking about the 1st of April, but we leave that one alone. Mm. Um, it is chronically incredible that we could be in this situation. May didn't have to trigger the two years when she did. Common sense would have told her, get her ducks lined up on her row before she went so that she, it was more or less a formality that it would have been what Davis described at the time, an afternoon and, and uh, Northern Ireland could be sorted out over a cup of tea. Um, we're not there and Business is getting very worried on both sides of the, uh, both in Britain and Northern Ireland and ourselves, we're all getting very worried about it. Um, and I think there was a lot of belief of it'll be all right on the night. And I think a lot of planning <laughs> worked on that basis. In other words, there was no planning. But I think we now realise that we've got to sit down, businesses have got to sit down and do something about it. It's really not hard to imagine a, a situation uh, in which she puts a, another meaningful vote to the Commons, which will be defeated, and that they will decide not to run European election candidates, and that they crash out on the 12th of April. Yeah, uh, you know, there are some people, ideologues on both sides, of both in the Labour Party, on the extreme left, and on the extreme right in the Conservative Party who don't care 
and that's what it comes across that ideology is far more important than bread on the table and food and jobs and clothes and all the rest of it you know politics should be about making life easy for people to live in not for the one percent or the two percent who can afford to put ideology and dreamline ahead of every every daily life and you know that's what we're looking at Mm. i mean and that's what business is so frantically worried about because we all believe that common sense and Paddy Matthews, good friend of mine, his famous saying is that the only problem with common sense is it's not common at all. Um, and that's, that's the issue. And all business can do now at this stage is, you know, start, if you haven't started doing it, start talking. I mean, you know, I'm an advisor with Intertrade. Intertrade are offering a fantastic facility for all businesses in the whole island, but particularly in this region, if, if you've got a Brexit problem, go and talk to them. Or come and talk to me, and we'll talk to them into trade. Leo were there as well in the local employment office, and can I just say the, the tremendous work that Thomas McAvoy is doing in the Leo office. Um, we're blessed to have somebody just as competent as he is. Um, but businesses need to tap in now at this stage, and it'll be all right on the night. It's not going to work. Um, you know, I was talking to Gerard O'Hare of Beagans recently, and like you know, they're gearing up for the fact that if this could happen, this could, all by mistake could actually happen. So that the very thing we thought wouldn't happen, which would be a hard ball on the on uh, on the island, actually could become a reality by stupidity. Um, and no one wants it. That's the frustrating thing about it. But someone's got a lead, and yeah, there's, no but one, there's no one in Britain prepared to lead. Did this uh, agreement yesterday make it all the more possible that it could happen by accident, if you want to put it that way? Because, uh, I mean, if the scenario that I just outlined a moment ago transpires uh, to be the reality of the future, that a vote is put to the MPs, they reject it, they say they don't want to run candidates for the European elections, uh, it seems as though there's little room for wriggle. Uh, Not even a general election could postpone that, could it? No, no. I mean... You know, the, the European Parliament makes major decisions. Like, I mean, we keep hearing this thing from the British that, you know, decisions are made in Brussels, they're made over there, as if over there was nothing to do with them. Um, but in fact, the European Parliament is a critical part. It's not the only part of making decisions. Some are made at commission level, some are made at government ministerial level. But the Parliament serves a huge function. And, you know, we're blessed with the MPs we have, uh, MEPs that we have in Europe, Maureen Hark- uh, Harkin um, and, and, and Maureen McGuinness would be the two that, you know, Maureen McG- is Vice President of the European Parliament, so she has tremendous clout. But people like that, who are there on the ground, they actually make decisions. And this is the point that Britain has always failed to understand, that if you engage within the process, you actually can achieve something. And that's what we've learned as a small country, mm. engaging within the process. But standing half in, half out, not knowing whether you really want to be in the club or not, you're going to be ignored. And that's basically what's happened to Britain over the years. And they need to realise that European Parliament is important. We cannot allow the European Parliament to be tainted by any question that it hasn't been properly formulated and everything else. So the elections are fixed for the 23rd of May, I think it is. That's it. It's locked in. So yeah, and default, people this, might this say that I'm pa- people might say that I'm painting the doomsday scenario, and I, I think I probably am. But uh, the alternatives are, are not better. Uh, there is one uh, alternative that might be a little bit better, and that's that they vote in favour of a deal, and then it's put off till the twenty second of May. Uh, but after that, uh, you're in a scenario where they decide to run candidates in uh, the European elections and stay in Europe indefinitely. Another or nine months or 21 months or whatever the case may be. Uh, the reaction to that in the United Kingdom is frightening in the extreme. Uh, 
and uh, the only other possible positive alternative is that they revoke Article 50, but again, it's frightening to think what the reaction to that might be. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the problem. I mean, I, I've listened to Tony Blair on a couple of occasions talking about what should be done. The first thing that strikes me when I listen to him is he's not the man he was when he was pr- Prime Minister. He's well shaken. I think the, dis- you know, the decisions he made on Iraq and have been proven to be false, and that's been held against him, and everything else that he's saying and trying to lead has been tainted by that. The, the problem that Britain has is that it doesn't have a leader and hasn't had for a long time a leader that would say Europe is the way to go or we go completely the other way. But the reality is that option of you know, being an island on, a, on its own and, and doing its own thing, it's not a runner anymore. That, you know, the days of England being able to decide everything and every other country having to accept it, that's 150 years ago. It's even before the First World War. It's gone. And, you know, the problem we have is here in, in, in Dundalk and, and in Ireland is we've got to live beside these, these clowns. And I use that expression. You know, there are some sane people in, in, in England, but not enough. And they've been drowned out by bellicose noises from Boris Johnson and others that don't make sense and aren't properly challenged. Um, and I think there was a too casual an attitude towards the Brexit referendum. You know, the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, and everybody was all in, in favour of a Remain vote. Mm. Uh, and they all assumed that the people wouldn't listen to what the Red Tops had been saying for 40 years. Uh, and unfortunately, it's happened. OK, uh, so this morning, uh, as far as you're concerned, as somebody who watches this closer than most and has... Uh, it's a bit of a narrow on it, yeah. A right handle on it. Uh, I think there's five options uh, to choose from, uh, they could crash out, uh, it would seem, on the 12th of April. They could exit with a deal on the 22nd of May. Uh, they could remain in the European Union for a longer period than that. There could be a general election. There could be a second referendum. And a sixth option, then, they could revoke Article 50. Which of the six would you choose? I'd go for a second referendum. Uh, because I think the last referendum was fought on a whole load of false rubbish, um, particularly written on what was written on the back of the buses. Um, and I think people are more informed. I think, yes, they are very tired of it. I think um, they're, they're weary of it. But at the same time, I think people realise just the importance of the decision. And I think the younger people, those you know, 18, 19 years of age, who realise that their future is going to be significantly changed. I mean, Horizon 2020, yeah. opportunities in universities and all the rest of it. I think that penny has dropped. I think the fact that you saw the TUC, the Trade Union Council and the CBI coming together yesterday yeah. to write a joint letter. I mean, when I grew up in the 1960s watching British news, it was the TUC versus the CBI every mm-hmm. single day, which strikes and God knows what else. To see the two of them united saying, this is madness, you know, yeah, and you remember the miners' strike? You remember remember yeah. the civil unrest? And we break the miners' and, and, and the determination to break, and that's the problem. But I but, mean, but but you know that the United Kingdom is not beyond civil unrest, and that we were talking about a, an isolated industrial dispute, which obviously had social consequences and captured the minds and spirits of a, 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 a generation of people in the United Kingdom throughout the seventies and into the eighties. Uh, but with something like this, uh, it would undoubtedly lead to civil unrest if there was to be a second referendum, uh, and the consequences could even be more severe. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, anyone, you started the programme by saying this is no laughing matter, mm. this is a very serious situation, and that's exactly right. And we have a neighbour who we would like to get on with, and we would, and whom we have been good friends with down through the years, um, tearing itself apart. And, and it's because of a lack of coherent leadership, and, and that's the problem. And if I look back over the last 50 years and I say, well, you know, where was the last leader that Britain had? Funnily enough, I go back to Churchill. And what did he say? He talked about the Iron Curtain and he talked about the change and he talked about Britain's future was not in the Commonwealth, it was in the, it was in the European market. Now, for a country, for, for a man who grew up believing in empire and growing up in that magnificent palace that he grew up in and everything else and being told all about it, to realise that the game was up and pointing the way and saying, we're part of Europe, we're no longer where we were. You know, but yet nobody has got that message. And... When I deal with British civil servants and British, sorry, British politicians who've come in from the north, what strikes me is either they're willing to listen, in which case they're almost inevitably remainers, even if they don't say it to you, or they're absolute ideologues like Edwina Curry and others who just simply don't, not Edwina, uh, Kate Hoey, who simply, I apologise to Edwina Curry, I didn't meet her, uh, but Kate Hoey, who just simply don't want to listen to what we're saying, you know, and they're fixed on this. And they're doing that not out of economics, most of them are independently wealthy, so they don't care. Uh, and it's just just frightening. And what we've got to do in Ireland, and I'll bring it back home local, is we've got to look after ourselves. We've got to protect ourselves as best we can. We've got to recognise that there are serious problems that could arise. Please God, they won't. Mm. But, you know, as we're in my Chamber of Commerce Act, which is what you're talking to me about, mm. we've got to start planning if we okay. haven't already. Well, I, I, I don't think uh, there is a, an appetite to crash out of the European no, Union so. in the United Kingdom. So I, I, I imagine, and I hope it's right to say that it won't happen on the 12th of April. I don't believe uh, there's an appetite uh, to run candidates in the election, so I don't think it'll happen on the 22nd of May. And I, I think an indefinite stay uh, is very unlikely. I think it would be more possible to think of them revoking Article 50 and calling the whole thing off rather than staying in it indefinitely. So that leaves the other two options of a general election or a referendum. Now, I think that a general referendum is probably more likely than a second referendum as things stand. And who's to say and who knows? Uh, that would just be my tuppence worth this morning. Uh, but if you're right uh, and it is a referendum or if I'm right and it is a general election, would you agree that Mrs May has to go for either to happen? Yeah, she's gone. I mean, she's lost all credibility. She doesn't control cabinet. She doesn't control anything. There's, she's no power left. She has destroyed the the power and the mystique, or whatever you want to call her, of being the prime minister, of walking into a room and everybody recognizing her as leader. Um, that's gone. Um, and it's an awful shame. Uh, it's not nice to see anybody's political, anybody failing in, in, in whatever business that they're, they're trying to do, but she has to go. Um, and if she, the one thing that has to be done next week, and we, we're assuming that it's going to happen, is that the powers of parliament will actually vote to defer, at least kick it down the road for, till the 12th of April. Now, they have to do that, because otherwise the default is that they go next way, next Friday unless they, unless they actually correct the timescale. Mm, um, mm. But, you know, maybe, you know, you're asking me what I, I think will happen. I would love to see a, gen, a referendum, a general election, probably more likely. Would it produce anything? That's the problem. I don't, with the push-past-the-post system that they have in the UK, um, the Liberal Democrats aren't getting a shout in. I mean, and, and you look at where, where they are, surely in the name of God, they should have been able to make inroads in, in the last while. But Vince Cable, he's not up to the job. Um, 
and it's just a, a sorry mess. Um, and unfortunately, we, you know, the old saying that Britain gets cold and we get pneumonia. Well, you know, that's that's potentially very very true. Mm. Um, in some industries in particular, you yeah, know, yeah, I mean, yeah. some industries aren't as exposed as others, but there is an exposure. I have to give it to you, you're much worse than me. I thought I was painting the doomsday scenario, but that possibility uh, of them crashing out next Friday is still on the table. Can I talk about one other thing yeah. very briefly, because we're looking at the future and we're talking about yeah. planning. This week, the Revaluation Office sent a notice out to everybody in Louth County Council uh, who's in business, what their rates was potentially going to be. The one thing they didn't tell you was exactly how much that is. They told you that what the figure was that they valued the property, but they didn't tell you what the what's called the multiplier was. And the multiplier is uh, a roughly 0.228 if you're in the dark, and it's slightly higher in Jordan, and slightly lower in the rest of the county. The, there is, there is inf- clinics available to, uh, Monday and Tuesday of next week in the town hall. People should find out where they stand. There is an appeal procedure. Um, we'd like in the chamber to get feedback from members as to whether they, what they feel. This shouldn't affect the overall amount of money collected in the Louth County Council. That's what we've been told. It's just a balancing act so that some areas which aren't as strong as they were, say, 10 years ago, are going to be recognised that they need a bit of a break and other areas which are very strong um, will have a higher rate. But I'm just going back to the overall question of planning. It's just we need to sit down. Now, we've asked the government to give um, rates rebates back into the border counties. We've got nowhere with it. Um, the former teacher told me that he can't do it on the European rules. I just said to him, do it and then ask for forgiveness, but he's not interested in doing it that way. So, you know, but it is another yet another worry that business faces in the dock. Very good. We'll leave it there for the moment, Paddy. Thank well, you for, Margaret, for Michael, thank joining you. us uh, this morning. Paddy Malone is uh, the PRO of uh, Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, 48% of us uh, believe uh, that the use of drones is beyond us. We have little or no understanding of drones. And 71% of us think that drones are invasive, under-regulated and potentially dangerous. Uh, This is uh, according uh, to an iReach survey. It surveys a panel of some 40,000 people on an ongoing basis. Let's talk about... uh, the findings with Seamus Boland, who's the chief executive of Irish Rural Link. Good morning to you, Seamus, and thanks for joining us. I'm sure, like us, you've been hearing a lot of concerns about drones, and they seem to reflect what this survey is saying. Four out of five of us believe that solutions are needed to stop the malicious use of these. A lot of us are concerned about accidents, a lot of us are concerned about spying, and a lot of us are concerned about security issues. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Indeed, uh, that would be true. Members of Irish Rural Link, they would go along with that kind of survey. I mean, the reality is we're very clear when we talk about data protection and privacy and, and all of that. Uh, We've lots of laws to ensure that, you know, personal confidentiality is maintained in whatever field uh, of form application, you know, and all of that to the, to the state or to the public generally. And yet, uh, we have this physical manifestation of of drones, uh, which are in effect uh, can be used as spying machines, mm. can turn up across your backyard, 
It can be used for criminal purposes as well. It's uh, very easy for criminals to do, and rural security is very important in rural communities, as you know. Uh, it will be a very useful uh, way of collecting intelligence in terms of people's habits and people's uh, out of housing and all of that, whether they're at home or not. Mm. Uh, so really, people are very concerned and right to be so concerned. Who, who owns, the, who owns the airspace over my house or over my land? Uh, I mean, could it be considered to be trespassing? if one of these machines come into my property? Well, it, it could, uh, it, but the reality is that the state generally regulates the air over your house and the roads around you and all the rest. Mm. Uh, yes, if you go onto your property and the air above you is technically your property, um, you, can, you could. But the trouble is, who do you accuse of trespassing? How do you put your case to, to place if there's no legislation to help you do it? So it it really is a lot more about uh, regulation and control yeah. of people who, who use these um, uh, machines. Well, if I shoot one of these machines down or I somehow confiscate one of these machines, could I be prosecuted? I think you could, but it would be an interesting case. Uh, I mean, I'm no legal expert mm. here, so mm. I, I'm careful. But, you know, there is, as you know, sometimes in the courts... Uh, you know, some understanding uh, of people who try and defend their own property. But as I said, very it's a limited some understanding. So I'd imagine if you thought if if a drone was found, let's say to be the, in the ownership of a criminal or somebody like that spying on you, it'd be interesting to see mm. what a, a court would say. But I wouldn't advise it. Let's be clear. No, I know. But if I see a, a drone come into my property. Uh, would be concerned that somebody is casing the joint and that they're looking to see where the entrances are, do we lock the doors, when people come, when people go, and trying to build up some sort of a profile so that they can come back later and rob me blind. So if that's my concern, obviously I want to take action, and if I take action, uh, I wonder uh, how it would end up in court if, in fact, it was somebody who was uh, trying to take photographs of uh, the hill beyond my house. I think you get a lot of sympathy from the public. Again, the law might mightn't uh, be great of great help to you, and, and I would argue strongly there's something this is something to be addressed. I mean, the reality, like when a drone appears over your house, especially uh, let's say you know a hundred meters, two hundred meters, three hundred meters even above your house. Well, then with, with photography uh, technology. A lot of information can be gleaned, and equally, you know, we we all have privacy. I don't. As last summer, we would have all liked sitting out in the sunshine and maybe in our back gardens, in the in the let's say in the, in the sun mm. clothes, and and you know, in in this day of, of porn and stuff like that, children playing outside and all of that. These are the issues that most people are really concerned that their photographs of them, photographs of their houses can be used for purposes which are nefarious, which are wrong. Mm. Uh, And any drone, I think, should be very identifiable uh, and we we should know Mm. why a drone is in the area. Yeah, and you raise a really interesting issue there that a, a drone could be sent in over a playground or a schoolyard. Indeed. Indeed. And I think, you know, people sometimes laugh when I speak, but our members are very clear on this as well, by the way. Mm. But you say, ah, look, don't be such a, a killjoy. And indeed, I'm not being a killjoy. But we have to understand that all society out there is not perfect or, not, or angelic. And these people who, you know, who are criminals, who use private data, 
private photographs or information on the on the goings on and the the work of whether it's a schoolyard, a playground, anything. Mm. These people are are absolutely ruthless, and we really, as citizens, should have a way to ensure that you know our privacy is protected. Mm. And it's not protected if uh, the pilot of the drone isn't trained to fly the drone. Uh, Apparently only 29% of those who have drones have some sort of specialised training. Sadly, uh, again, the lack of regulation here is quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, You know, I I was involved yesterday at a a, a seminar talking about the the, the toughness of the GDPR regulation and that, etc. And yet we have the Wild West operating in this regard. I mean, you you have untrained pilots, you have untrained machines. Accidents certainly can happen, uh, and that's just that aspect of it. Uh, They can be used anywhere they like. They can appear in or around your house. If I went in or around your house, Mike, I think... Uh, you'll probably uh, be ringing guards very quickly to mm. say, what am I doing there? And yet I can have a drone over your house and really you're powerless to do anything about it under current legislation. So it is a Wild West uh, situation that exists around the control of drones at the moment. And for everybody's sake, including the positive use of drones, uh, I think we really are uh, so far behind that we've got to get our act together. Mm. Uh, and the next question, of course, is how, how do we do that? Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, there is certainly focus on this after flights being grounded in Dublin and in London recently, and undoubtedly we'll see more of that as time goes on. Uh, but uh, it's uh, technology that seems uh, to elude legislation for some reason. Yes, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a problem in terms of technology with the drones as well. My argument strongly has been, and I don't see why this isn't possible, that when a drone appears even for 10 seconds into the public view, like at the airport, it should have an inbuilt uh, system which immediately signals who owns it, where it belongs to, and all of that. That isn't impossible to to make sure each drone has that kind of technology. I mean, the airport is farcical, and in London, Heathrow, they still haven't sorted out where or when or how uh, or anything about it. So it could happen any given time. And I'm also amazed at the lack of urgency uh, which governments seem to be uh, bringing to this situation, because to me, it is a serious threat. And as we've seen in Dublin Airport, okay, it lasted half an hour, but it caused widespread consternation and disruption to people and you know if if these guys really got their act together they could do quite untold harm and that we haven't got an exclusion zone of at least five kilometers I would even go so far as ten at around airports is is quite amazing that such legislation isn't prepared and discussed before the parliament. All right, Seamus I'm sure uh, we'll be back talking about this again in uh, the near future we leave it there for the moment though and thank you indeed for joining us today Seamus Boland is uh, the chief executive of Irish Rural Link. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Department of Justice said yesterday that it was no longer in a position to provide a direct provision centre for asylum seekers at the Shannon Key West Hotel in Ruski. This is on the Leitrim Roscommon border. It follows legal advice from the Chief State Solicitor's Office, which found difficulties with the lease agreement between the owners of the hotel and the operator renting it. 
which made proceeding with the proposed centre unviable. Let's talk about this uh, with Michael Fitzmaurice, who's an independent TD for the area. Good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, do you understand the basis for this decision? Yeah, I do, yeah. Um, I saw some of the media outlets yesterday were trying, as usual, to twist and turn um, the, what, the, what was said. Um, what has happened, and just that you'll put it into context, um, the hotel was owned by a person. Um, they were selling the hotel. Um, uh, there was an agreement at the sale of it. And in the meantime, um, there was that previous owner, uh, it is alleged that they uh, were given a lease to another company. Um, the problem, I understand, is that there was two folio numbers. When that lease was done, there was only one uh, included in the lease, is my understanding of all of this. And on top of that, so that obviously would cause problems. Um, and on top of that, the new owners were obviously buying this, or the new people who were buying it, were buying it for opening as a hotel. Uh, they weren't interested in going down the road of um, providing for an Iraq centre. And on top of that, then, over the last number of weeks, you will have seen that um, there was a submission made to onboard Panola in relation to planning, which um, has been obviously investigated, and um, the planning situation wouldn't stand up uh, under the current uh, planning this year. So the idea that if you want to open up a, a refugee a direct provision centre somewhere and somebody else objects to it, they can stop you from proceeding by trying to set the place on fire is nothing more than a conspiracy theory. It's absolutely a conspiracy theory because in fairness, um, in all sides of this debate, and look at I would have pointed out, Michael, on several occasions that, first of all, Ruski um, wouldn't be a suitable place because it's, if anyone that knows Ruski, it's a lovely village, but a very, very small village. You need to make sure that those people are looked after well and that the proper services are put in place. But nobody, upon nobody, and I've heard stuff about racism and all this coming out, you will not get nicer people than the people of Ruski or better people. They are... An, you know, a lot of them are actually um, make it looking to see where would there be houses to help people mm-hmm. in those situations. But it is absolutely, look at, I've, I've read some mm-hmm. of the media uh, correspondence yesterday mm-hmm. and you'd wonder um, what world they're living in with some of the stuff that has been said. I, I think uh, you're right, or at least right to a, a large degree, and I, I don't doubt for a moment what you're saying about uh, the people of Ruski and that they're not racist and that they would be welcoming to people and that the decision to house asylum seekers in a hotel in Ruski was a bad decision and it was only made because the hotel became available rather than uh, the area being suitable and that is quite often what happens. Uh, I think it's this firefighting approach that's uh, taken in terms of giving people asylum in this country very badly planned out, bad consequences and so on. But regardless of that or the legal difficulties that were met in trying to make that hotel available for that use... Uh, there's no doubt, is there not, that it sends this message out, rightly or wrongly, to people that if you don't want a direct provision centre somewhere, all you have to do is try and burn it down. No, no, absolutely not. Because if you look at what the department said, and in fairness, it would be very easy for me as an opposition TD 
to contradict David Santon mm. and the government. But I'm not into that type of in politics. Um, what they said is exactly accurate regarding the lease yeah. and regarding the um wish. That is nothing. Mm. No one condones anybody uh, setting fire to anything. No, but what you have to what you have to deal with mm. is the facts, and the facts but, are. But the facts are different to what I was putting to you, which is the perception. The perception that people have, rightly or wrongly, as I said, is that if you don't want a, a direct provision centre to be based somewhere, try and burn the place down and well, it won't happen. Well, first of all, if if the leases are right, and get this very clear, Michael, mm. and if the planning permission is, is right, nothing else will stop it. And people, you know, let, let people be very clear on that. And whatever perception people mm. have, what you need to do in any case is look at the facts of the case and they are as I have stated. And I'm not disputing the facts, but are you disputing the perception that people have uh, and that this could lead to copycat action? And I suppose that is the fear that a lot of people have. Well, uh, first of all, no one condones any skullduggery like this. And I've seen media reports where it said, you know, there was stuff being said about the people of Ruski that they were racist and all that. Absolutely not. If some person goes on a solo run or two or three or whatever is supposed to be alleged for at the given time, um, they are not part of Ruski. Never were part of Ruski because the people of Ruski are lovely, decent, honourable people. Who do you think they were? Uh, How I, do I know? Well, I mean, well, well, I mean, I think it's a really interesting question, don't you? In that a lot of people from Ruski say. Uh, they don't represent us, and we don't think they're yeah. from Ruski. So who or what well, type of person would come from outside of the area and act that way? Michael, no more than someone that's in stuff to, uh, if you read there a few weeks ago, to England, um, to say in, in parcels, or no more than, uh, you know, to, to what happened to ministers. There is people around this country that no one can answer for or condone and we don't know. There's no point. We can't get inside somebody's head. The Gardaí, mm. in fairness to them, are going, are looking into all of that. And they are professional at this. So well, it seems that, that this gang are professional, doesn't it? I mean, the statements the Gardaí made about the last attack in February was that it was an organised uh, uh, attack that uh, took place after a period of surveillance. It sounded like a, a criminal gang. Uh, is this a, a right-wing gang of fascists that are acting this way and that we can expect them to act this way again in the future? My understanding was the last time, was it 7 or 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening, you wouldn't imagine that someone was very organised at that time of the evening, to be honest about it. Because it, that when people are out walking and, and people have done going around the place, you know, I, as I said, the people of Ruski or the people of Roscommon do not condone any of this. Mm-hmm. No politician condones it. But let's be very clear on this. It has absolutely nothing got to do with the government decision. Because at the end of the day, you'd be the very man and people would be ringing up if a government went into a lease that didn't stand up and paid taxpayers' money. Mm. And that's where there'd be a, a, a huge problem as well. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not taking issue with that. As I say, the facts are the facts, uh, but uh, sometimes it's not always the facts that we have to contend with, and if the perception is something different, it can be far more serious than the facts. Well, we, we, deal with the, we have to deal with the facts, mm. and we have to explain the facts to the people out there the way that if there is perceptions, that, they, that it is made very clear why something was done somewhere. 
because in fairness to any minister and to be very easy for me going to the Dáil next week or the week after mm. if a lease or something didn't stand up or something was wrong with planning permission and uh, highlight it to a minister and the media would be saying oh well this is a very irresponsible government we've seen enough with the children's hospital and things like that so they have to be prudent with taxpayers money and in fairness in this one they were right all right, Michael, thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning on the programme. Independent TD, Michael Fitzmaurice. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. Pat from Dunleer was in touch this morning, listening into your interview at the top of the show there with Paddy Malone from Dundalk Chamber in relation to the latest on the Brexit mm. front, Michael. Yeah. And he was saying, in relation to the comments about civil unrest in the UK, he doesn't believe so. He says at the minute, the march that was organised by Na- Nigel Farage, he says, sure, there's hardly... Uh, many on that to to warrant saying that there could be civil unrest or there is civil unrest. Fair enough then. And he he also said that you also have to bear in mind that apparently the petition to revoke Article 50 has now reached 2 million Mm. signatures. And that is democracy in my opinion says Pat from Dunleer that you can change your mind Mm. and that this is what the... um, you know, that the powers that be should be taken into account. Yeah, okay. That well, the mood is yeah, changing. Yeah, well, that's a, <laughs> a, a, an internet poll and uh, I think has to be taken with a, a grain of salt to some degree. Uh, how it would it all pan out? Uh, I don't know, but I, I think that there would be some people who, who wouldn't just be upset by it, but would be very upset by it, depending, uh, and I mean either way, whether they stay yes. or go. yes. Sean from Navin, I agree with your guest. I think a second referendum could make a difference, that there could be a different outcome. Um, Sean himself thinks there would be a different result, that they would vote to remain. And mm. it would all be over, Michael. Yeah. Imagine. Mm. Imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, Noel uh, from Draja. Michael, have you ever thought that maybe Theresa May is the clever one that mm. this is what she has been working towards and plotting all along, that she wanted to bring it to the wire and that maybe, just maybe, she's going to get her deal through now because it's either that or leave with no deal, which the MPs don't want. Yeah, I did. Uh, but uh, if that's the case, uh, it seems as though it's backfired because I think Mrs D- May's days are numbered. Uh, Mairead from Drada is glad that the EU leaders uh, the way she's saying is is putting it up to the UK Mm. they're clearly fed up with their behaviour at this stage and so are all of us Michael they now have a choice go in April without a deal or go in May with a deal Mm. we cannot be waiting forever for them to continue to dither well they've been given that choice as well they can go in April or go in May as she said but they can also wait forever (laughs) <laughs> because the MPs in the main, they don't seem to know what they want, says Mairead. Ah, uh, they do. No, they don't. <laughs> well, that, they that's one thing everybody can agree yeah. on, I think, mm. that they don't know what they want. Yes, I agree that we disagree, perhaps, <laughs> maybe. Thomas says, Michael, are you not just sick of it? Yeah. Are you not just sick of Brexit? Yep. yep. Every day there seems to be something else happening, mm. but yet it's nothing concrete, nothing that is actually going to bring this whole horrible scenario to an end. Will I sing? <laughs> you do. No, you will, do. I, will I sing? No, okay, no, okay, no. Okay. Please don't. Okay. okay. <laughs> 
can, well, I move on to drones because we had a couple of comments about that. Oh, do you God. want to stay you with mean Brexit? Something other than Brexit. Great. Okay. Yeah. Siobhan, all very well to think that drones are harmless. But, mm. Michael, when you see one hovering over your house, it's very disconcerting. Yep. Happened to me last summer. I never really thought much about drones. They weren't really on my radar. But I was in my back garden enjoying the sunshine and there was one just over us Mm. going around and then kind of just still. I really felt unsettled that I was being spied on and then I was worried that the house might be broken into. Mm. That there surely there needs to be some rules governing this, that we put up walls and fences to protect our privacy, yet something can just fly over and you could be somebody could be filming you. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't on your radar, but perhaps you were on its radar. Yes. Good one, Michael. Deirdre says, I hear you talking about drones. They can be very dangerous going into airspace, disrupt the whole country. Uh, and also the fact that they could be watching your house. Mm. People are fearful that they could result in your house being broken into. All right. Can we talk about consumer protection for a moment? I, I know I know, people are going, he's not going to go on about Viagogo again. I know it's a hobby horse or whatever, but I really do feel strongly about it. Not for me. And I'll explain to you in a moment why it's not for me, or at least not for me anymore. Uh, but I am very concerned uh, about people who may be exposed. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, to what seem to be unscrupulous methods of... Uh, hard selling uh, and uh, maybe unable to get redress as a result of it. I've been unfaithful. 
Okay. Yeah, uh, there's a, a radio station in Limerick called Limerick 95 FM. And How I, could you? Yeah, I, I was on Limerick 95 FM yesterday making my case uh, with uh, Rebecca O'Sullivan, uh, who interviewed me about uh, the way that I was sold invalid tickets by Viagogo. Afterwards, this statement was read out on behalf of Viagogo. Viagogo does not set ticket prices. Sellers set their own prices, which may be above or below the original face value. All tickets on Viagogo are valid. Event organisers sometimes make claims that they will deny entry to people who've purchased resold tickets. These types of entry restrictions are highly unfair and in our view unenforceable and illegal. Therefore, as with all tickets on our platform, Viagogo customers should feel confident that they will gain entry to the event and that is why we back every ticket with the Viagogo guarantee. Our customer services team and ourselves explained to Michael Reed at the time that the transaction had completed and therefore a refund was not possible. We also explained that his tickets were correct and valid for use and there was no reason that he would not have gained entry. Now, that was the Viagogo statement read out on Limerick's 95 FM yesterday at 12 o'clock. Do you know what happened at 2 o'clock? tell me. They changed their minds. They said they were wrong, that I had been correct, that they didn't meet the standards that they should have met, that uh, they should expect uh, people like me to get tickets and to be allowed into venues if we pay handsomely for those tickets and that that wasn't the case and that they're working to rectify this particular problem. They're committed to enabling Viago customers to access events and they expressed their apologies to me two hours after the statement that we heard a moment ago. So we thought we'd put the two statements together and see how they sound back to back. Viagogo does not set ticket prices. Sellers set their own prices, which may be above or below the original face value. All tickets on Viagogo are valid. And that was the Viagogo position as broadcast on Limerick's Live 95 Today programme yesterday at 12 o'clock. But by 2 o'clock, Viagogo changed its position, saying that Mr. Reid, namely me, was correct in my statement that the tickets issued to me did not meet the standards of what customers should expect and they should not have been allowed to have been issued by Viagogo. We have issued Mr. Reid a refund which should process in the coming days. Event organisers sometimes make claims that they will deny entry to people who've purchased resold tickets. These types of entry restrictions are highly unfair and, in our view, unenforceable and illegal. I should also mention that uh, the statement you've just heard issued by Viagogo was issued to us in LMFM at the time that I bought tickets from Viagogo to go to a show and the venue had told me that the tickets were invalid. But I told Viagogo at the time that we could not publish or broadcast such a statement because it actually would be libelous against the particular venue involved. But as Viagogo is now retracting its statement, this obviously doesn't hold up and I am sure that Viagogo will agree that nobody has acted illegally. Therefore, as with all tickets on our platform, Viagogo customers should feel confident that they will gain entry to the event and that is why we back every ticket with the Viagogo guarantee. Now, that would appear to be completely wrong. Viagogo issued me invalid tickets and has now apologised. Our customer services team and ourselves explained to Michael Reed at the time that the transaction had completed and therefore a refund was not possible. That's what Viagogo said at 12 o'clock. At 2 o'clock they said, 
We have issued Mr Reid a refund which should process in the coming days. We also explained that his tickets were correct and valid for use and there was no reason that he would not have gained entry. No reason that I wouldn't have gained entry, Viagogo said at 12 o'clock yesterday. At 2 o'clock, they said that those tickets should not have been issued from the Viagogo platform. They also said that they are committed to enabling customers of Viagogo to gain access to events and that they're working to rectify this particular issue which I encountered to ensure that no other user encounters this same issue again. Again, they asked that their apologies would be expressed to me because they failed to succeed on two crucial counts in this instance, as they put it. And I'm sure this will be of particular interest to the 275 people who are employed by Viagogo in Limerick, who must be feeling a little bit embarrassed this morning about the behaviour of their employer. Michael, that was so interesting to listen to. Yeah. The difference in stories yeah. as well. Well, one story at 12 o'clock, another story at 2 o'clock. And I should explain. I mentioned that Viagogo asked that their apologies would be expressed to me. Uh, and I should mention, we've made a bit of a fuss about this. And I've never done this in uh, the 20 years plus of broadcasting that I've been involved in. it uh, Because I don't think that personal issues are usually or typically material for the programme. But this isn't a personal issue. This is an issue that extends to people young and old and vulnerable people and people who cannot uh, bring about the type of weight to bear on an issue that we managed to do in particular with this one and it was necessary. And I should mention that after our media coverage uh, here in the Mirror on Limericks Live 95 and so on, Viagogo were holding firm. They were saying, no, no way are you getting your money back. We did nothing wrong. They changed their mind at two o'clock, two hours after that statement was read out. Uh, and I want to t- thank a, a number of people because we contacted all of the local Oroctus members in relation to this because I do believe it is an issue that can That's affect right. so many people. And I want to say particular thanks to Helen McEntee, uh, the Minister uh, from Meath East, Fine Gael TD, who took this on board and wrote to Viagogo, and not only wrote to Viagogo, but followed it up with a phone call and the apology and uh, the question of issuing a refund uh, was made in a statement to Minister McEntee. So particular thanks to Helen McEntee and the work that she did on this is much appreciated. We would also like to thank Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil TD, who has taken up uh, this issue. Gerald Nash, a Labour Party senator who's uh, expressed uh, great interest in this issue. And Fergus O'Dowd, a Fine Gael TD, who said that he would raise it with uh, the Minister for Business, Heather Humphreys. We will be hearing more on this. Hopefully, Michael. Uh, oh, we will be hearing yes. more. No, I can guarantee you, we will be hearing more on this because it is an issue that extends past me getting my money yes. back, which yes. was part of it. I've got my money back now. Uh, but we will be hearing more on this. Uh, and uh, we're asking people, if you have had problems with Viagogo, to make contact with us because we want to make those complaints known to Minister Heather Humphreys. And we've been asked specifically to make an, an appeal uh, on that basis. So if you wish the government to act on your complaints... This is the Irish government. Want to hear from you. Please get in touch with us and let us know what your complaints are. Okay. Can I go to one final comment yes, on drones, yeah, if I yeah. can? Mm-hmm. Because it comes in for someone who, from someone who's in favour of them. Shane, oh, okay. Shane got in touch. He says, I fly drones regularly. They, um, they are not a stealthy thing like people think. They're incredibly noisy. Animals start getting annoyed, dogs barking, etc. It sounds like a large swarm of bees flying around. 
Google Maps has photos of your house online. It's not much different, to be fair. Also, in relation to drones and airports, most drones have it built in that they can't fly within 5k kilometres of an airport. The people flying them at airports are generally doing it on purpose and overriding the built-in drone programme. They are deliberately being malicious. So, in other words, a lot of people Mm. use them and don't interfere with anything. Well, if they were regulated, then we wouldn't have anything to worry about. I suppose everybody agrees if that's the case. All right. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks, everybody, who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, our telephone number is 1857-15958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, to be honest with you, actually, I don't know what I'm doing here. Uh, It's Friday. Uh, actually, we're, 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 I'm taking the rest of the day off and we're handing the show over to Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash, who works seven days a week, I think. Eight. eight oh, eight, is it? You're, you're a well, Beatles, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I was, I was saying to, to uh, uh, Maggie, uh, your producer, on the way in, that um, actually I must be uh, um, uh, somebody visiting for an item on the Sh- on Sinead Brassel's programme, but there's actually a car with a robot in it outside. Oh, right. And I assume that you had been replaced because you decided <laughs> to do a four-day week. Yes, yes. This is the fifth day, so... Yeah. Michael uh, uh, had left the building. Michael was down in the gym or going yeah. for a walk out uh, in Oldbridge or somewhere yeah. enjoying your, your four-day week and the robot's <laughs> going to take yeah. over the programme. Yeah. Well, for people listening to us uh, this morning uh, who are forced to listen to this programme five days a week because somebody else in the house enjoys it, uh, they may be very happy to hear a suggestion from Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash. Thanks for coming in to us, by the way. Uh, you're suggesting that people should have the option of a, a four-day week. Well, um, I, I am. Um and it's something that the Labour Party is looking at very closely in the context of the work I'm doing on what the future of work should look like. Um, the reality is that the way people work at the moment, you know, the general sort of five day, 39, 40 hour a week, owes more to kind of Victorian standards of employment mm. uh, than it does to the modern day where it was supposed, at least the vision was, that um, with the technological advances we've experienced, um, AI, robotics and so on, that these were supposed to be labour-saving devices, uh, not devices that would uh, mean that we would be attached to the desk uh, longer than we've ever been. And uh, that's a reality for far too many people at the moment. So I think we're many people are. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, you might only work five days a week, but what do you work in effect? Uh, do you work eight hours a day or when you open up an email Absolutely. in the evening Entirely. or on a Saturday or a Sunday, as the case may be, or take a phone call? Because of the way technology and communication has moved on, many of us work far more than five days a week. We do. And mm. this is another debate with this idea of the, the, mm. the right to switch off and it's been actively looked at in places like Germany and, and France and so on. Very difficult to do uh, in the context of modern technology. We're always on. Um, and I know myself as a public representative and people would say, well, that's what you sign up for. Um, you're contactable 24-7 via yep. a number of different platforms. If it's not your Eroctus email address mm. or your full-time office here in Drada, mm. 9.30 to 5 o'clock, Monday to Friday, yep. uh, it's various other platforms, your mobile phone mm. and so on. So, I mean, that's a reality of the world that uh, mm. I occupy and the work that I do and the work that I've asked mm-hmm. uh, to do. And, I, 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 and that's the reality of representation work. But, I mean, to, to look at, to look at I, I guess, the figures, we're working in Ireland probably about two, two and a half weeks 
more than per year than our peer countries. What do I mean by our peer countries? I mean countries of a similar wealth, um, you know, industrial and post-industrial countries, um, you know, wealthy countries, OECD countries. We are very productive. Um, you know, we're working two and a half weeks more than Germany, Netherlands, uh, Luxembourg, Belgium, and so on. Uh, actually, if you look at the UK, it's even worse. I mean, they're working four weeks longer, but um, they're not as productive. In fact, they're um, uh, significantly less productive in the UK than they are in Germany. And there's actually an interesting correlation, Michael. Um, you, you, would, you, would, you, would, you would imagine that... Um, Look at Germany, for example. Um, very, very productive country. Um, people have, there have much more flexibility. They're working fewer hours than the workforce in Greece, but Germany is much more productive. So the point I'm making is, and there's lots of research out there to suggest that if you move to reduce working hours at the same pay, people become more productive, companies become more profitable, work-life balance improves, there's real flexibility, mm. because the reality for a lot of people... Are fewer hours, though? No, we're not talking about mm. fewer hours at all. You're talking about the, condensing the working c- Condensing the working, and, 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 and this is important, mm. that the evidence suggests from the pilots that I've examined, the pilot projects that I've examined, and the experiences that I've, I've, I've read. Mm. For example, I'll give, give you a prime example. An economy similar to our own, Scotland, mm. um, a, a marketing company in Glasgow, um, decided in 2016 to reduce their working week from five days down to four days. So 37 and a half hours down to 30 hours. Mm. Uh, some people remained on the five-day week. It worked for them. It suited their lifestyle and yeah. that was fair enough. But the bulk of workers actually in the marketing, se- actually in the sales mm. se- section of that company decided they are going to take the four-day week. They actually became 17% more productive. Mm. Now, these kinds of initiatives are being monitored closely by academics. Uh, it's an incomplete yep. um, project, but I think there is enough evidence mm. there to suggest that we need to look very closely at this in terms of this actually benefits companies, benefits mm. profitability, benefits productivity, and provides for the kind of work-life balance that I think the technological environment we occupy now should insist upon. Easier to look at, though, in a context like that, uh, where you may be rewarded for the amount of sales that you achieve. Uh, But for people uh, who run a narrowly rate of pay, it could be very different if you go from 37 or 39 hours a week to 30 hours a week. Hard to ask an employer to reduce that hourly pay pay rate. And then there's also other issues uh, such as entitlements uh, to holidays and that type of thing, which is based on the working week. That's right. Um, and, and that's why, I mean, this is at the moment just a concept, but it's something, you know, we, we need to look very, very closely at. And there are certain sectors of the economy, Michael, that it just would not work for. Mm. I mean, if you're in a um, front-facing kind of customer service role where you need to be present, if you're working in retail, I mean, mm. this is not going to, at least the way retail is modelled at the moment, mm. um, you know, um, people need to be staffing that shop. Mm. Um, social care, it would be very difficult, obviously, because very demanding roles, nursing, healthcare assistance and so on, security, policing, very, very difficult. But looking at certain manufacturing processes, it would mm. work there. Looking at IT, um, um, looking at financial services, legal services and so on, it would certainly work there. Um, I mean, it was only 100 years ago, less than 100 years ago, the five-day week became the norm. Um, previously, that was six days a week. Um, people were off on a Sunday, working incredible hours in dangerous circumstances. There's lots of evidence as well to show that we are much more productive anyway in the first three to four days of the week. And there's a serious fall off in focus, production and creativity. 
activity uh, uh, late on Thursday and into Friday. Um, so um, mm. there's also interesting stats to, 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 to show that people feel much more empowered. They feel that they belong to the organisation, that they have more control over their own affairs. Uh, as one quote from a study that I've read s- said, uh, one of uh, w- one individual worker said that she, she's now been treated like an adult. Mm. Um, so she's got the option to work four days, became more productive, more beneficial to the organisation compared to those who are mm. working there for five days. It's at its early. It's 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 an, yeah. an early stage mm. of our some consideration like of this. I, I know some people like it. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, for the obvious reasons, uh, uh, and some not so obvious. Uh, some woman has texted in there saying uh, maybe Michael Reid could do a ten-hour show on a Monday, and I could listen to LMFM the other six days of the week. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> there you go. Put a comment on that. <laughs> Absolutely. But, I, I mean, it is something that would be very attractive in terms of uh, people's lifestyle and uh, the juggling that we do, uh, not just in uh, terms of feeling like an adult, but being able to spend time with family and uh, to think about childcare and that sort of thing as well. well absolutely. We know in Ireland, uh, because of it, it incapacity it seems for for government to actually properly grapple and fund um, childcare services in this country for working families that uh, there are huge savings to be made uh, from a four day week um, assuming that uh, the five day week is 39 hours reduce that down to you know 30 31 hours per per, per, per week uh, the cost that could be um, saved in terms of childcare uh, would certainly add up uh, over the year spending more time with family of course is important mm-hmm. it's about it, it's it's about real kind of flexibility mm-hmm. michael because when we talk about flexibility uh, it's generally one sided flexibility yeah. where all the demands are actually on the uh, staff to be flexible but if you're employed, whereas you actually yeah. go to your employer and say well look i need but, some time but are staff um, dossing for 9 hours a week i mean if you're employed for 39 hours and you could do the work in 30 hours. What are you doing with the other 39 as it stands? Well, f- focus wanes. And one of the um, mm. interesting uh, aspects of this that, I, that, that I've uncovered is that people's own experiences have suggested that they spend less time at completely unnecessary meetings. Mm. They're a waste of time because they're hanging around a the building. They're called into meetings to have mm. a discussion about work. What happens as well but is... could that, employers hear this mm. uh, in a, a different way, that they could, could pack hours uh, and reduce hours to 30 hours and save on their wage bill. Yeah, and actually some companies that, for example, close on a Friday, so mm. they save on utilities, they save yep. on security, they mm. save on all the things that, you know, yep. because they're just not keeping the doors open, so there are obvious, obvious um, savings from that. But that only applies, of course, to certain kinds mm. of industries that aren't or always a on. Monday, like, depending on what type of industry. Or a Monday, indeed. This, I think it's an idea, Michael, that's time has come. We haven't had a proper debate in this country on working time, a really proper debate across Europe, really since the 80s and into the early 90s, which gave rise to working time directives from the European Union yeah. to reduce the working week. One of the problems, and you, 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 you highlighted this just in your previous comment, yeah, yeah. about you know, packing um, you know, the same amount of work, the same amount of output into four days as opposed to five. Yeah. Um, lots of people who have had this experience of being reduced to four days felt that they were being heavily observed mm. uh, and that their work was being monitored to the point where it wasn't previously. Now, that's a trade-off. Mm. Um, because I think it is important to say this. I mean, it is important that your output and your productivity remains mm. the same. Mm. Uh, otherwise, you may go back to the five-day week. But other people have said, well, I've got that incentive. If I only mm. got to go in for four days a week, uh, then I'm going to pack all I can mm. in. Mm. And I'm actually going to look at, look much more closely at how I work yeah. uh, on my own processes. I mean, you you know, you might want to go back to the old kind of time and emotion studies. You know, mm. how do I work effectively? Uh, how do I work productively? We are actually, in the OECD published a report mm. in recent weeks, we are the most productive workers in, um, in, in, in the OECD, in the 
group of wealthiest countries in the world. So that's something I think to be proud of. But yeah. we are packing an awful lot into not just five days and a week, we only but get for one lots life. of people seven days. Yeah, you talk about eight days a week, there's only one life and uh, it's a question of do you live to work or do you work to live? Correct. Uh, some of us do this and don't have to work. <laughs> but <laughs> that's another well, you're, you're lucky work. that you enjoy yeah, the work yeah, that you yeah, do yeah, and, yeah. and so do I. And sometimes yeah. it doesn't bother me that I work seven days a week. Some, But mm-hmm. everybody needs their time to themselves, time with family um, and uh, time to enjoy life and this is a concept I think as time has come we're going to be considering it um, having you know, consultations around this uh, over the next uh, period of time we need to have this debate uh, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to lead it Interesting stuff Thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about Brexit once again. Independent member of the European Parliament, Marion Harkin, has come into us this morning. You're very welcome and thank you indeed for coming. Thank you, Michael. Great Uh, to be here. Can you make sense of what's happened in the last 24 (laughs) hours for us, please? Well, it's hard to make sense of it because it's one bit of catastrophe after another. But at least there's a bit of calmness Mm. about this morning. To be honest with you, uh, one of the things that frightened me most, Michael, was not what Theresa May was saying, not what any, you know, any of the the voices like Tusk or Juncker. I watched part of the debate in the House of Commons. Um, I, I can't remember, was it yesterday or the day before? And I could hear and sense not just frustration, but desperation in the voices of many of those who spoke. And they made very strong, very reasonable speeches about the future of the United Kingdom and their absolute and utter uh, concern about that and their fear of what might happen. And that's the kind of thing sort of that frightens you more than any of the the theatre that you see happening around. And, And I believe, for what it's worth, that um, I can't see May's deal getting through next week. And I believe Parliament will, in some way, not sure how, take control of this process. Yeah, and that is uh, the next question, because it it seems as though there's six bad options or thereabouts uh, in front of us. Uh, Which, then, is the best of the bad options? That's it. And... You know, I spoke in the Parliament in Strasbourg last week and I've I've said it since. We need to look at this from the more long-term perspective about our relationship with the UK. And Michael, I made the point that in 1992, the Danes said no. Mm. 2001, and I think 2008, Ireland. Mm. 2005, France and the Netherlands. And through protocols and extensions and all different processes, we found ways to work together. Now, I know the UK are leaving, and I know that's different, but we have to take the same Mm -hmm. view. There are those who, for short-term interest, and remember, there are elections coming up in every single member state, and some of them are having national elections. So people want to Mm. give out political messages, for example. And even more might be having national elections that are scheduled at the moment. Um, Mm. But, I mean, there's nothing... If if you're a French politician, it's it's a positive to be seen to be hard or tough on the UK. So... You know, we we need to understand the context of that. Mm. So it's important that we look at this in the longer term and in the round mm. while giving the British 
every opportunity to either get an agreement or then come back to look for a longer extension mm-hmm. or whatever. But give them the flexibility. It takes two to, to make that. an agreement, though. And I said this morning that uh, the doomsday scenario was uh, that they'd be gone on the 12th of April. But in fact, it's actually worse than that, because in order for that doomsday scenario to be possible, the MPs must decide next week to defer the date of the 29th. And albeit a, a small possibility, there is a possibility that this day, next week, the United Kingdom legal default position under Article 50 Mm -hmm. will come into play and they'll crash out. If Parliament were to allow that to happen um, then it would happen. But you and Mm. I have had this conversation Mm. many times and what I've said to you is I do not believe any British Prime Minister would allow that to happen. I believe there are people who would but they're not Prime Minister now and will not be for the decision-making. I do not believe the British Parliament as a whole will allow this to happen because, Michael, there would be chaos and nothing short of it. Mm. And not just in the UK, there would be chaos everywhere. Globally, yeah. And And chaos here uh, uh, on the border. uh, It's hard to see how that chaos can be avoided. To what extent or how chaotic it is is another day's work Uh, but it it is unlikely that Mrs May will get support for her deal and uh, that they will leave on the 12th it's unlikely that they'll uh, decide to field European candidates and leave on the 22nd of May. Uh, there'll be great resistance to an extension up until December or the December after that, as uh, the case may be. There's the prospect that Mrs May's days are numbered and she could be gone by the end of next week and there could be a leadership contest, a general election or a second referendum. How do you call it? I think May's days are definitely numbered at this stage. I think her deal won't get through. At one stage, about a week ago, I thought maybe it might because it it might be what hard Brexiteers saw as their last final chance for a definite Brexit because if May's deal doesn't go through, Brexit is still on the agenda but so are other options. But I mean, I was just having a quick look at the newspapers out there this morning before I came in and I see that the DUP are still describing this deal as toxic. Mm. Now that tells you everything you need to know. It's highly unlikely she'll get it through. I don't see the Labour Party. Yes, some of them may support her, but not in the numbers that she will need. And um, I think May will go. They'll have to look at a successor, might be David Liddington, maybe as a caretaker. Mm. I don't know. I can't judge that. Um, They will have to agree to European elections. There'll probably be a general election and an extension. The the truth is that Parliament as a whole, Mm. that's the House of Commons, uh, cannot muster a majority to support her proposal. And what is the public reaction going to be in the United Kingdom to that? Will there be riots? Will there be one riot? Will there be more riots? Will there be complete civil unrest? Uh, Are we talking about uh, the breakdown of law and order? I don't think so. I think if they crashed out, we could be looking at that. But I think as long as it's on the agenda and the Parliament is dealing with it, then I think at least it's part of the political process. And you know something? 
in many ways, this is this part of it is ending as it began. Mm. If you go back to Theresa May, you remember the time she called that general election without telling anybody? She yeah. went away for a weekend. And lost her majority. Yeah. Mm. Sure, she, she'd get an overall majority. She then set about uh, setting her red lines out of the single market, out of the customs union, etc. There weren't Parliament's red lines. She had a small group of people around her she changed her Brexit secretaries. We're on the third one mm. in the space of how long? 18 months, whatever. And at no point in the process was there any genuine reaching out for consensus for bringing people with her. So it's ending as it began. Her style of negotiation uh, is just, it didn't work. It, it couldn't work in mm. a way because if you don't pe- bring people with you, they're not going to row in behind you at the very last minute. But to be fair, mm. she was dealt a bad hand. She she played it badly because she had to look over right. her shoulder all the time mm-hmm. at the hard Brexiteers. Do you think that there's any chance that they'll say, look, let's call the whole thing off. Let's forget about it. Let's stay in the European Union. Let's revoke Article 50, as they put it. I don't think that's a possibility or a real possibility Yet. But we still have a couple of steps to go through. As you've said, we can't be absolutely sure they won't crash out. I'm still positive they won't. Mm. I believe they can't. But I suppose that's how history is made, Michael. Mm. Things that can't happen do happen. But I I still believe it won't because I believe the House of Commons will not allow it. Um, What will happen after that? is open-ended because we could have a general election. And again, just from reading reports, I see that Corbyn, who's in Brussels at the moment, or certainly was yesterday, uh, twice refused to rule out an extension, sorry, a revocation of Article 50. So we just, it's all in the mix at the moment. But my instinct on Corbyn remains Mm. As it always was, Corbyn is at heart a Brexiteer. Yeah. So that's Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of yes, the Labour yeah. Party, the main opposition party, and Mrs. May is looking to the opposition for support in getting the deal through. Yeah, which but there is are many so, Labour mm, members mm, mm. who who would support her. Mm. It's. I think maybe we're looking at a general election. Certainly, Theresa May is gone. I don't see her being yeah. replaced by a hard Brexiteer. How would that? feed into what was agreed by the European leaders last night uh, because I don't believe it was part of what was contemplated in the various scenarios that was set out. Would that require uh, another meeting of uh, the EU Council so that they could uh, allow time for a general election to take place? I think it would. Um, I mean, if by if they agree her deal, then it's over. She has her extension to the 22nd mm. of May. If they don't, Um, It's only until April 12th. And as far as I understand, they have to come back and say we're putting plans in place for a European election. But even, Michael, if you look at this whole extension, I know people's heads are mithered about this Mm, date mm, and mm, that mm, date, whatever. It was made very clear at the beginning of this week to Theresa May. There are two extensions. There's an extension until the 22nd of May, the day before the European elections, or there's a longer extension to the end of this year, maybe longer, Mm. but to then. 
what did she do? She came back and she asked for an extension to the 30th of June. Mm. Her own parliament didn't expect it. Mm. Nobody expected it in Brussels. And And impossible. I I thought to myself, Mm. if she's going to fight battles, why doesn't she fight battles she can win? Realistic battles. You know, Mm. and and maybe that's that's the pattern of of what's been happening. But it's it's very Mm. uncertain times. And I did some BBC radio this week and some Euronews and there were people calling in from the UK and a few of them were quite angry and blaming the EU because the UK couldn't leave. Mm. You know, they can leave. But what I was trying to say to them, and to be fair, some of them did listen, is that the idea here is that, that the UK leaves in a way that we can continue mm. our relationship with them. They're strategic partners, of course, from mm. Ireland's perspective. That's crucial. But we've got to look at this, not about this yep. month or next month, about the news cycle. We've got to look at this from a medium to long-term perspective. And look back on it in the same type of perspective in the sense that when you hear people make those arguments, and I've heard them made myself, where people are, are saying the EU won't budge. The EU is not budging from the agreement it made after 18 months of negotiation. That's right. And there were two sides in that. There were. And, mm. you know, Michael, you might remember that famous picture of the first day of negotiation where you had David Davis on one side of the table and Michel Barnier on the other side. Mm. Barnier had a sheaf of papers about two foot tall yep. in front of him and David Davis had nothing. And I think... That was the, and and I remember Davis at that time, he was quite confident. He really wasn't going to bother with Brussels. Mm. He was going to Paris. He was going to Berlin. He was going to talk to the big boys and tell the French that they need to sell their wine and their cheese and Germans need to sell their cards. He thought he'd pick off, you know, the big countries and that Ireland and small countries wouldn't matter. I'd say to this day, there are many who still cannot believe it's it's hard to resist saying something EU derogatory it really is together yeah. on mm-hmm. this yeah. and that it wasn't up to the british to do business as usual listen it's great to see you in our studio thank you indeed for Thanks, coming Michael. into us this morning independent mep marion harkin Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Irish Cancer Society is uh, calling on you to support Daffodil Day today. It's uh, an annual fundraising day for the Irish Cancer Society. Donald Buggy, Head of Services with uh, the Cancer Society, is on the line. Good morning to you, Donald, and uh, thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. It is a, a fundraising day today, but I, I, I think there's probably a little bit more to it, is there? Oh, I think it's. I think there's a lot more to it than, than just fundraising. It's a day, I, I think, when people really get the opportunity to, you know, to talk about cancer, to share stories, and you know, it's been something which has been going on for for over thirty years now, and uh, it's about you know communities coming together to you know, to really support people who have been diagnosed by cancer or who have experienced cancer over the past year. So it it is a very important day for us, of course, from a fundraising Mm -hmm. perspective. But it's just, you know, it's being able to show solidarity with people who have cancer and to to experience that as a community. And the Irish Cancer Society in itself is a a very big organisation. There's many strands to the type of work that you do in terms 
terms of services uh, that you provide, advocacy uh, and indeed the helpline that you run. How, how important is it in terms of funding the work that you do overall? Yeah, well, the, the society gets very little funding from the state and, um, you know, that's that's something that people probably don't realise. So, uh, about 95% of the the work that we do is funded by the generosity of, of people, uh, communities and, and companies right around the country. So, you know, when you think about the, the work that that funds in, this morning, 50 volunteers arrive at cancer patients' houses, we'll bring them to their treatment and we'll bring them home again. Tonight, as everyone is settling down to, to watch the Late Late or whatever they do on a Friday evening, we will have around 40 nurses who will go to people's homes to support families and cancer patients in those last days of their lives. So it's, you know, it, it's mm. it's something which goes on almost on a, on a 24-hour basis. Sometimes it's seen, sometimes it's unseen due to the nature of, of cancer and due to the nature of healthcare. And I think the other thing which it does is it gives hope for for better treatment. When Daffodil Day started over 30 years ago, around 3 in 10 people survived a cancer diagnosis. Now, through research, through understanding what works better, we, we, we are at a point where more than six out of every ten people will survive their cancer. And that so takes us... I'm sorry. The impact of that then is that, you know, they're, they're, if you consider a, a town, say, the size of RD, four or 5,000 people, yeah. that's, the, that's the additional lives saved every year over the last 30 years. So that's mm. the difference that Daffodil Day makes, and that's where the money goes to support right. those improvements. Uh, an incredible thing to think of, uh, let alone to achieve, which is the reality of it. And that brings us uh, to the announcement today of a, a clinical trial. Tell us uh, about uh, how women with advanced triple negative breast cancer may be treated in this country in future. Yes, yeah, so the, the society has, has invested in, in a large collaborative research project called Breast Predict over the last over the last five years and really what we have tried to do there is to bring together all of the best researchers in, in, in breast cancer in order that everyone is is working together to, to ensure that we have the best uh, treatments and, and the best outcomes for women with breast cancer. One of the trials which is which is available and which is coming forward now is um, related to uh, triple negative breast cancer because breast cancer can be broken down into a number of, of different diseases and um, across across all of those disease types we are bringing forward new clinical trials and new options and the hope is that the progress which has been made in breast cancer over the last number of years will be continued in order that more and more people will be able to not just survive breast cancer but indeed thrive after a breast cancer diagnosis. All right. well I I think uh, apart from buying a daffodil today which a lot of us will do, a lot of us like to wear a daffodil today to show support and solidarity with people who have cancer or people who have lost others to cancer as the case may be. It's a, a very important day I think in the lives of many people in this country and what other ways can people support the work of the Irish Cancer Society? You will see Irish uh, Cancer Society volunteers all over the country today. So yes, absolutely uh, buying a, 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 a daffodil 
calling into a boot store or going on to the Irish Cancer Society website for cancer.ie are the ways that, that you can support Daffodil Day or indeed on cancer.ie you can look at different opportunities of how you can volunteer to support the society and by supporting the society you're supporting people in your community who have cancer. Donald, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Donald Buggy, the Head of Services with the Irish Cancer Society, bringing our programme to its conclusion this Daffodil Day. Before we go, let me remind you that there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Our thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Marie in the Control Tower. Hope you have a lovely weekend, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.